Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hi there, Jeremy Scheinwald here, founder of Mission Driven Group. Today we're bringing you another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. For those of you who are new to our show, this podcast is produced by Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates where they can launch their careers as entrepreneurs and revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit www.ventureforamerica.org. And I should add that this is an organization that I personally have been committed to for many years as an inaugural board member and as an entrepreneurial board member and now as a volunteer and very passionate uh, host of the podcast. I want to thank all of our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please rate us on iTunes and tell your friends to as well We can so that we can continue to bring you interviews with some absolutely amazing entrepreneurs like today's entrepreneur. Uh, we have serial entrepreneur Ethan Anderson on the show. Ethan is a Duke grad who started his career at McKinsey before dabbling in an award-winning entrepreneurial idea that he chose not to pursue. That's an interesting story right there. And then he ultimately joined Buy.com during the tech boom as director of strategy and analysis before becoming, before joining, uh, before in, enrolling at Harvard Business School where he got his MBA. After Harvard, he joined Clorox and then Google in brand management and product management roles uh, before launching Red Beacon. In just under three years, he founded Lead and sold Red Beacon, which is a site and app that allowed consumers to compare home services uh, providers, pricings and ratings to simplify, kind of think an unpaid Angie's list, but he might not appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so that might be an overly oversimplification. Um, he sold, Red, he sold Red Beacon to Home Depot for an undisclosed sum, but one expected to have far surpassed the $7.5 million in venture capital that he raised um, for Red Beacon. Then immediately after, Ethan launched MyTime, a con convenient way to book open appointments with service providers, think dog groomers, hairstylists, acupuncturists, and more. Acu acupuncturists and more. Ethan has been growing MyTime for almost five years. MyTime has thousands of service providers on the site. In the meantime, he's also advised startups like Brightnest, acquired by Angie's List, and Summify, which, is acquired, which was acquired by Twitter. Here is our interview with Ethan Anderson. So, Ethan, uh, thanks so much for, for being here. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Um, I actually, I'm, I want to start um, because I noticed something in in your resume, where, you know, in your work history there, where you graduated from Duke and you started your career at McKinsey. And Venture for America is an organization that is kind of devoted to diverting high potential talent like you, who um, from going to places like McKinsey and, and are going to consulting or banking or law and trying to introduce them to, to entrepreneurship where you ultimately ended up. And, and I'm curious whether McKinsey was like a thought process of, you know, this is great training and it's going to lead me to entrepreneurship or whether it was kind of like, oh, I don't know what to do. A lot of guys are going to McKinsey. Maybe I'll give this a shot and figure out what it's all about. Sure. Well, I initially thought that I wanted to go into public policy or politics. So, you know, throughout high school and then all through college, I was really studying government, uh, policy, economics. And, you know, it was probably after doing two internships in Washington, D.C. in college that I suddenly realized 
there's no way this is a good fit for me. Like I don't have the patience for it. It's frustrating. It's not innovative. Um, you know, it's probably gotten 10 X worse than it was back in the, the mid nineties when I was exploring it. So it was, I guess in my senior year of college that I said, I'm going to go into business instead. And as I started to think about where would I go, uh, the consulting route made the most sense because if you don't know the industry you want to go into, you don't you don't know what job function you want. It's kind of the the general purpose business education. You learn. Um, you, you see different industries over their time there. Every three or four months, you're working at a different company in a different industry. You're working with different teams, and you're learning very basic skill sets like presentations, analysis, teamwork. Uh, and it, it's just like a, a great foundational skill set. In fact, they even sent me to business school over the summer at Dartmouth because they thought, well, you have no business background at all. You know, we can't put you in front of clients. So we're gonna put you in a summer program with about 50 other uh, new McKinsey hires just to give you a basic business foundation in finance, accounting, um, you know, and other business school type topics. So. From that standpoint, it's actually a great way to learn about business. Now, you're not gonna learn technical skills like you know how to program JavaScript or something like that. So if your idea is I'm gonna leave school and you know go code up a startup, it's probably not the right thing to do. But if you wanna just kinda get that foundation, I think it's great. And for, my, for me, what ended up happening is it was the late 90s, so it was like the dot-com boom. And all of my projects at McKinsey were internet related and they were for internet banks and software companies and movie studios but each project had a theme of how do we use the internet in our business and that's kind of what got me directed into tech i was so excited about it in fact the thing that appealed about tech the most for me is that i thought hmm, nobody else seems to know more about this than i do it's so new it's not like this is like the railroads or something you know it's not like there's a huge base of knowledge and experience that's been built up around it People are figuring it out every single day because it's brand new. And so I'm almost as qualified as they are to understand what's going on. And that's why I, I love tech. I felt like I could be at the top of my game early in my career. Um, and then, you know, as you probably saw, I left McKinsey to go work directly in tech um, uh, after my experience there. Let me let me jump in with that because you, before you went to work at, at Buy.com, you, you were, you explored and, and actually won, you developed an award-winning business plan for quick returns, which was an idea that you had to um, create collection depots in major cities to manage product returns. I think uh, we probably all are around the Christmas time right now. I'm sure there's billions of dollars in, in uh, merchandise being returned right now um, mm -hmm. and refund the money to customers. Like, were you... Were you um, developing this in your quote-unquote free time at McKinsey, which I, you know, McKinsey's not known to have much free time. Did you did you leave McKinsey to <laughs> did you leave McKinsey to to to, to launch this? How, how did that all work? Well, I mean, you know, again, it was like the late '90s, and so you're just you're living and breathing this whole like dot com boom. And if you bring yourself back to that time period. It, it was a little bit different than today. Today, online retailing, except for Amazon, of course, is basically offline retailers who have websites. You know, and um, you know, you go to BestBuy.com or you go to Walmart.com or whatever it is, Costco.com. But there's physical stores from those same chains, and you can return the products there. Back then, it was almost all pure play e-tailers is what they called them. It was things like e-toys and pets.com and e-style. And it was, you know, the, the big uh, offline retailers, the legacy companies, were very slow to get into their e-commerce game. And so, as a result, you could purchase things and if you didn't like them, it was an incredible hassle to return them. You would have to go box it up, ship it back to them. Sometimes weeks would go by because they weren't good at it at that time. You know, the, the return process, they weren't good at it. And you'd be waiting for the refund to go to your credit card. And it was just like the whole, and then uh, I understood from my friends who worked at these retailers, these online retailers, that they didn't know what to do when they got the product back. They didn't have what they call like reverse logistics figured out. You know, how do you dispose of the product? Do you return it back to the manufacturer? How do you resell it for some, you know, at some lower price? And so they would just sit there in a warehouse, you know, unused. And that was the opportunity I saw. I was like, what if we partnered with physical stores like mailboxes, et cetera, 
which today is the UK store, uh, Staples, and other places that had existing pack and ship operations, and then allowed those companies to tie in to these online retailers such that if you wanted to return something, you could just drop it off. They would package it up and send it back for you, and you'd get your money back at that exact moment. So you didn't have to wait for weeks and weeks to go by. And I, you know, and in fact, it's kind of what's happening today. I don't know if you've returned something from Amazon recently, but they allow you to print a label out. And as soon as you drop it off at, let's say, the UPS store, you know, they, get, they tell you your refund is already in the bank. Right. They don't, they don't wait for it to get back to them physically. So I guess maybe the idea is a little bit ahead of its time. Um, the reason why, despite working on this great business plan, which you know, got picked up, uh, by Business Plan Pro, which is the leading uh, business plan software at the time, and turned into their sample plan, um, is that the dot-com crash happened. You know, we'd finished writing the plan in about February, March timeframe of March two th- uh, of 2000, and everyone was just freezing up. The venture capitalists were freezing up in terms of the ones that thought they would finance us. The uh, potential customers that we were going to go to market with were, you know, completely freezing all expenditures, no new investments, and in fact, ultimately began to shut down. And so, I kind of was in this weird holding pattern from March until June, and it didn't seem like it was getting better. So, what I decided to do is I thought, well, why don't I go work at one of these online retailers for a couple of months? You know, like I'm just kind of sitting at my house, you know, not really making much progress. Maybe if I just go work at one of these companies for a little bit, I'll get some great experience. Maybe get a good customer, kind of a launch customer, and see how it goes. So buy.com, B-U-Y.com, was the second largest online retailer in America at that time. Amazon was first, and buy.com was doing about $800 million a year in sales of mostly things like Palm Pilots, uh, but some books and music and video. So it was just a general purpose online store. And uh, the idea was I'd go, I'd go work at Buy.com for a couple of months to get experience. And then when the market kind of returned to normal, go back to working on this other business called Quick Returns. Um, as it turns out, that dot-com crash was more serious than anybody realized, and it never really recovered, at least not for uh, you know, several years later. So, had, so you felt like it would have been a viable, at that point, you felt like it would have been a viable idea but the environment changed so much that it just it just didn't make you you just couldn't get it off the ground. Yeah, I think that's really what happened. I mean, in fact, you know, almost zero dollars respect. <laughs> the truth is, it was an idea which was. An, I mean, I'm telling you, uh, Jeremy, we didn't today in 2015. We don't do this kind of planning anymore. When we go to a venture capitalist, we generally have a PowerPoint presentation now with like 12 slides and we have a financial model, and that's about it. This, back in the day, back in the 90s, this is like a, you know, a 70 or 80 page plan with graphs and charts and analysis and single line text. I mean, this is a real business plan. We just right. don't do that today. So is this is a different era, and right. it takes a long time and a lot of thought to put something like that together, but because we finished it right as the, the dot-com crash began, we actually never launched it. We never had a, a go-to-market partner, either on the, you know, the staples and mailboxes, et cetera, which you know, we were gonna partner with, or with customers, you know, such as the online e- retailers, because they're all going out of business. You and I were chatting before the show about, uh, about old Saturday Night Live and, and Chris Farley's um, mock uh, mock, um, uh, you know, daytime TV show or nighttime TV uh, 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 talk show, and I, when you're talking about the uh, you're talking about the 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 70 page business plan, I feel like that's the Dana Carvey Carvey character is like back in my day we had to develop a 70 page <laughs> business plan and we liked it, you know. Um, it's it oh, just, I know. I mean, we we would stay up all night long. It'd be like four in the morning, and we were just like crunching through like page 74 of the business plan. I mean, it's it's really funny to think back on that and. Obviously, it was the, you know, quote, unquote, right thing to do because it got picked up as like, this is a perfect business plan. Right. You know, it's so funny. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so quaint. And you're right. I mean, I, I see pictures it's on quaint. my desk. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you think about it today, you know, the reason why we don't do things like that is because look what happened. You know, by the time you had this perfectly piece, you know, perfect piece of writing written in the ivory tower, the entire market and industry dynamics had changed, and it was already outdated by the time, you know, the ink was drying. Right. And so I, I think that's probably why today, you know, venture capitalists, investors don't really expect that. 
Right. Well, we had we had uh, Russ Heddleston on from from DocSend, which has created a program which um, sends a link instead of a file, and then allows you to track how people are interacting with your presentation or your pitch. And I'm sure I'm I'm sure he would say that uh, if you're going to send 70 pages, uh, people are going to look at the first four and then uh, and then give up. Whereas you're probably better sending you know 10 pages where they feel like they can get through it. So I guess there's a uh, you know an, an obvious uh, human behavior element to it. Um, yeah, and you know, and later on in the show, if you're interested, I'm happy to kind of walk through what I think investors look for today in you know investor pitch. I think that there's having done a lot of them now, I've kind of gotten a good sense of what they really want today. Yeah, absolutely. So, but so yeah, totally. Let, but let's. I want to stick with the with the a linear line here for one moment because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this entrepreneurial bend, um, and uh, you know, and you, and you 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 have this idea that's kind of burning in you, and it's not the right time. But and then you go to Harvard Business School. And I'm curious whether, you know, was that, were you expecting to kind of stay the, stay the course? And uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of that Duke question over again. It's like, okay, if you go to Harvard, right. you're like, yeah, I'm going to come out and be a professional or I'm going to come out and launch a business. What were your expectations coming out of Harvard? Well, for one thing, I think that I, I had always thought that I would go to business school. And I know that must be true because when I graduated from college, and I had that summer off before starting McKinsey, I took the GMAT, you know, and that, that score is good for five years. And the thinking there is, well, I've got the whole summer, you know, with time to study. Um, all that academic knowledge from four years of college is pretty fresh. I mean, like if I tried to take the GMAT today, it would be a disaster. I don't know any trigonometry. Um, I'd probably be like caught up in the analogies, you know, I don't have the kind of like, you know, thinking anymore. Right. Uh, but I thought this would be the best time to take it. So I took it you know, a month out of college, and it did great. Uh, I think my, my philosophy was correct. But that kind of shows that I've always intended to uh, go to business school at some point, at least once I've made the transition to business instead of politics. And um, yeah, and so I was at Buy.com for a year, and you know, it was a rough time. Uh, it was an interesting time, because you know, the company had just gone public, Buy.com had gone public. And I think that was in April of 2000, and I joined in June, so just a couple of months after their IPO. And this was a company, you know, in the worst kind of way, where the entire purpose of the company was to go public. Right. And you know, you don't see this today. In fact, you actually see the opposite, where companies that probably should have gone public three years ago are trying to like hang on to being private as long as they possibly can. They call them unicorns. Right. And um, you know, but back then, <laughs> just showing how times change, the whole goal of a company was to go public. And so, Buy.com was kind of built in a house of cards. They were selling every product for like ninety cents on the dollar, losing money, trying to make up the difference with advertising and vendor rebates for high volume sales. And, um, you know, that strategy just wasn't working. So they got public, actually was pretty successful, even though they went public in April and officially the dot-com crash started in March, the, the IPO still went well. So, yeah, like the, you know, the, the founder kind of jokes like, you know, the door was hitting me on the ass <laughs> as we were going public, but he, he got in. The, the, and the, um, Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. They, when I joined, the whole, the whole company was like, oh crap, what do we do now? You know, what's next? We're losing money. We didn't really have a plan post going public. Let's figure it out. So it was a rough time for the company. Um, you know, there was layoffs and, uh, it was a kind of an interesting thing for me to witness. It was kind of, you know, still being pretty early in my career. But uh, it, I learned a ton. I worked on pricing strategy. I worked on, um, you know, which stores Buy.com should be in, which products we should be selling. Um, a lot of stuff for the board and for the CEO. So it was super fascinating. But after about a year, the original founder of Buy.com, who had left, was coming back to take it private. His name was Scott Blum. And when they went public, he was asked to leave. And, you know, now that the stock had gone down to like, you know, 50 cents a share, he came back and took it private. And that's about when I thought, okay, this is a good time for me to get out and head off to business school. Right. And, and I mean, the share price triples and, and, and you mentioned like that, you know, it was a bit of a house of cards. Like, were you, were you aware of that at the time or is that hindsight that it was a house of cards? Well, I kind of knew because, you know, here, here's how they pitched it to me. They said, look, we've never had any strategy. We haven't really operated this like a business. It was just a growth machine. You know, it was just get the revenue as high as you can, get to IPO as quickly as you can, cash out, and that was it. 
Right. Um, you know, now that the game is up, we've gone public and the market's crashing, what are we going to do? And I mean, I, I would love to just, if we had hours, I would tell you all kinds of interesting stories about underwater options and tax bills that were higher than the value of the options and why the founder had to leave, you know, when they went public. I mean, there's tons and tons of interesting stories just even around that. But the bottom line is they thought, well, we'll bring this McKinsey consultant in have him work in the strategy team and help us figure out a way out of this. <laughs> you know? right. And you know, it's not that easy, but that's what we were doing. And we actually came up with a very innovative pricing strategy, which I think is probably still used today uh, around the world. And that was price the very high volume SKUs very low. So if something comes out that everybody's shopping around for, say like the new PlayStation 4 or something, everyone's going to price it. Everyone's going to shop, shop, compare. They're going to look at the comparison sites. You're going to go to Amazon, Walmart, uh, buy.com, whatever. But then when you start to buy longer tail SKUs, like accessories or things that are, you know, were launched a few years ago, you can really make some margin on those really make the margin there and don't worry about the volume just make profit on those and so what we built was a system where you would set revenue and margin goals you'd say okay for today i need this much revenue and this much profit dollars and the system would then like through machine learning kind of algorithms optimize which SKUs it would price really low for volume and which SKUs it would price really high profit Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I am, Ethan, I'm so tempted to spend like an hour talking about the craziness at buy.com, but I, I guess I really want to talk about, about what, what, <laughs> what your, your entrepreneurial endeavors, but you really had me licking my chops there. But let's, let me go back, because I think I, sidetra- I sidetracked you. Uh, um, when, you, when, you when you went into Harvard, were you expecting to come out and launch a venture, or were you like, yeah, I mean, I'll, do a couple, I'll do a couple more years of, of, in industry and, and figure things out? Well, you know, I mean, we, we live in the world that we live in, you know what I mean? And so when I was leaving Harvard, I mean, it was the day, you know, the week I started Harvard was 9-11. Um, you know, we got out two years later and we were like involved in two wars. The economy was in recession. And so it did, you know, it wasn't, it, tech wasn't like the big boom thing that it is today. Like we're talking about it, like it's always been like this. It was, you know, it was a very dark time. And I think that uh, I was just worried I wouldn't have a job. Mm-hmm. So this uh, consumer packaged goods company called Clorox, uh, spun out of P&G in the 70s, they, they were recruiting on campus. And I was thinking, you know, I just need to make sure I have a job when I graduate. And we had to commit to them by December, even though graduation wasn't until June. Yeah, they, they did on-campus interviews in the fall. And I felt in my heart, this was not me. This is not what I wanted to do. And I was like really depressed about it. You know, that I was going to work at a company I knew I didn't want to work at, but I was just so concerned that I wouldn't have a job when I graduated and what would I do that I accepted it. And I think that that was a mistake. Uh, looking back on my career, kind of the trajectory, I think that I wasted two years of my career uh, at Clorox and while I learned a lot of things because Clorox is a very analytical company around, you know, in some form or fashion since the early 1900s when it started as a bleach company. It was acquired by Procter and Gamble, then spun off again. Um, so they have a lot of good processes on how to, you know, how to do uh, proper marketing, how to do product launches, how to do volume forecasting. So you know, I learned a lot of things, but they weren't the relevant things for starting a company. The company wasn't entrepreneurial. It was very process oriented. It was very hierarchical. And in fact, they, it, they did something which was a great management lesson for me and maybe for the listeners. They thought if you're really good at something, check the box and then put a person onto something they're not good at so they can get better at it. And I actually, I think that's a totally wrong philosophy. If you find someone who's really good at something, put them in a situation where they can use that skill and they can thrive and help the company as much as possible. Clorox thought the opposite. They thought, well, no, you're good at that, so we checked that box. We've got to get you good at this other thing that you're not good at. And they force force you to work more on that. And that just led to like misery and frustration, I think, on on the part of a lot of the employees there. 
I think I, you and I can go for a beer afterwards and, and commiserate because I graduated from business school the same year as, year as you and I had the same experience. So I just need to get a job. It was a tough time for, for, for sure. And I spent, I, I waste, I only wasted a year, but, uh, but I, I, I understand that entirely. But then, so then, then you move on. So you move from Clorox to, to Google and, and, um, and you spend a few years there, which I'm assuming is far more entrepreneurial, but I've also got to assume Google is still, I mean, it's, it's, it's not quite the, quite what it is now, but I, I mean, there's significant headcount at Google at that point. I mean, it, did you did you find any similar frustrations? Was it bureaucratic at all? No, no, not at all. Uh, not when I started. So Google was 5,000 people when I started. Now, 5,000 may sound like a lot, but not when you're at Google scale. I mean, now Google's, I think, 10x that. So 5,000 was really nothing, considering how big of a company Google was and how much traffic it had. And so it was actually amazing. I, they gave me a choice of jobs. They said, you can do product marketing, you can do product management, you can do international product management, and they said, Joe, just choose what you wanna do. So I said, well, I'm 30 years old, why, why don't I do this international product management? I've never had a job that pertained to international before. This would be really fun and interesting. And there was, unlike Clorox, <laughs> there was like no training, there was no supervision. I don't even think I met my official manager for like three months because he had 50 direct reports and he was the head of all of international. And so I didn't have even like a single one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. And you know, I, I was assigned to a new product that had just launched at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas called Google Video. And Larry Page and Robin Williams were up on stage, you know, announcing the product to the world. And then I, I joined that same week and they said, okay, good, Ethan, you go internationalize it. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Which country should I launch in? What, what, how do I internationalize something? And it was just like, figure it out. So I think for a lot of people, that would be a horrible role, a, a role that would just drive anxiety and indecision. And you know, it, but for me, as an entrepreneurial person at heart, this was like, oh, breath of fresh air. I love it. You know, I can run around the organization, be scrappy, and grab people and pull them in, and you know, make my own decisions about what's important. Fly to those countries and meet with the teams there. Um, meet with content producers. Figure out the laws uh, for privacy and video and everything else. And you know, it was such an amazing learning experience. So much so that I just worked like. 24-7, and I'd wake up at 6 a.m. and with calls in Europe and go to bed at like midnight with calls in Asia and just be like dreaming about it all night long. So it was like being at a startup for me, even though I was at Google and had the resources of Google. So, so I, I loved it, I learned a ton. I don't think I could have been you know, as good of an entrepreneur as I am today if I didn't have that Google experience. Um, but by the time I left Google three years later, it had changed like a lot, it really changed. And I can get into you know the, the actual moment when I decided to leave Google and start my own company. Yeah, I, I guess that, I guess that's where we are because I, I I find it very interesting. Like I feel like so much of so much of entrepreneurship is maybe maybe comes out of the Clorox experience or my experience in, in banking where it's like I, I got this idea and I got to get the hell out of here. And, and in your case, you're talking about like with real passion about how much you you loved Google. So how did you determine that you would leave 2008 Google, which uh, as we all know now, the benefit of hindsight, I, mean, I think we had had a sense in 2008, but as as truly become a juggernaut. I mean, I looked at the stock price, it's gone up four times since um, since 2008. So you left something that was pretty safe and secure and promising to just start your own business, which ultimately proved to be ridiculously successful. But tell us about that moment where you just had to walk away. Yeah, so it, funny enough, it goes back to Harvard Business School. I was um, a product manager at Image Search at that time, so I'd moved out of international and I was working on just core product development. And I went to my five-year reunion for business school. And I, I had these amazing colleagues, classmates, uh, at that reunion, and they were telling me the things they were doing, the companies they'd started around the world. Uh, one guy had started this company called uh, Khan Academy, which was like you know, this incredible education destination that was educating millions of people in different skills. Another person had started two companies, another guy had started the largest private equity fund in the Middle East. And I was just thinking, gosh, I'm just an employee at Google. Great job, everyone's like, oh, Google, awesome company. But I was like, you know, I'm one of 5,000 people and I'm not really making my way in this world and I'm not gonna think back like I did anything really amazing. 
And so that was kind of the moment, just being there with all my classmates to see what was possible. Because I knew I was like, I'm just as smart as them, just as capable. Um, there's no reason why they should do any things, and I'm not, other than willpower. So I just willpower and take the risk. So a month later, I quit Google. You know, so that, that, um, that, that reunion was like Memorial Day weekend, and by the end of the summer, I'd already left Google and was already starting Red Beacon. And, and did you have, was, was Red Beacon a well-formed idea at that point? Or was it like, yeah, I've got an idea. I, I think I'll, I'll work on this when I leave. Well, I, you know, one of my uh, classmates has started a similar company to Red Beacon in Japan. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, Japan was far ahead on mobile and, you know, kind of a, uh, the adoption of mobile in the society than the U.S. Mm. Yeah, I'm talking years ahead. Now it's probably all at parity. Uh, or the U.S. is, you know, even further, perhaps. But at that time, things came out on mobile first in Japan, and everybody had a mobile phone, a smartphone. And he had built kind of an app um, that helped uh, business owners or people find service providers. So let, let's say that uh, you need someone to help you, I don't know, stock your store shelves or, like, wash dishes at your restaurant or something like that. You could just press a button, and people who were in Dubai would get the alert, and they would say, okay, come in, and they, you know, come $100 that would be transferred to their account, and they'd be over at your place in an hour to start doing the work. And I was like, wow, what a cool, like, on-demand labor market. And, you know, there's nothing like that in the U.S. I mean, we have temp, temp workers, but that's like, you know, Manpower Inc. That doesn't feel like the same thing. So that, that was the idea I was excited about. And we started to work on that. And it, over time, it kind of morphed into Red Beacon, which I can explain what Red sure. Beacon ultimately became. It was... Um, the, the the final version of Red Beacon ended up being you're a consumer, somebody at your house, and you need some kind of home service done. <clears throat> you need a wall painted, you need a toilet installed, you need a fence built, whatever it is. You just take a picture with your phone, describe what you need done, and then you get four bids within minutes from qualified service providers, people who are licensed, insured, guaranteed, um, and they have their full profiles, ratings and reviews, and the price that they'll do your job for. And so you select someone that you want to do the job, and then Red Beacon gets paid by that service provider who has to pay us, you know, around 10 to 20% of the job value. And so you, um, you, you and you, I think you and two partners started this, and you, you bootstrapped to the start. Is that am I correct with that? My online research. Yeah, is that's correct? right. So you know, I had left in August, August one, and I got two friends from Google to join me by November. One was the best engineer I worked with on uh, worked with at Google Video, the product that I worked on at Google. And then the other one was a friend who was a product manager for Google News and got them to join me. So we had, you know, three equal co-founders. And, uh, you know, and we just, we worked for that first year out of a small, small dingy office in San Mateo. And San Mateo is interesting because it's, no one really lives in San Mateo. It's halfway between Silicon Valley and San Francisco. And so the co-founders were geographically split. So we agreed to meet in the middle and start the company in San Mateo. Funny, actually, right across the street from where YouTube was founded, huh. and we um, we worked for the year. We didn't pay ourselves a single penny. We kind of tried to do all the work ourselves, except for design. We hired a contract designer, and you know we built a, a great prototype. And right as we were finishing up, and getting really close to being ready to launch, um, the applications for this competition called TechCrunch 50 came out. And TechCrunch 50 doesn't really exist anymore. Fortunately, it's gone away. But at that time in uh, 2008, 2009, it was like a preeminent competition for startups. Um, the companies that had come out of it included Dropbox, um, included Mint.com, included Yammer, which sold for you know, over a billion dollars to Microsoft. I mean, so phenomenal you're coming out of TechCrunch 50's competition. And you know, if you won that, it was like an amazing thing. So a thousand companies applied to be in TechCrunch 50. And those 50 companies presented over two days on stage at this uh, venue in San Francisco. And there's about 3,000 people in the audience watching, and there's about 100,000 people watching the live stream from home. So it's actually, you know, it was quite big. 
And just to be selected in the top 50 was like a, a game-changing moment for us. We're like, wow, we cannot believe we got accepted in the TechCrunch 50. Like, put on, you know, all the emails that we send to VCs and we have to raise money. It's going to make fundraising easy. It gets notoriety. It's awesome. And as it turns out, we won it. And um, it was such a shock to me that we won <laughs> because... I, I, I will be totally honest with you. This is not just me saying this. I was standing on stage. They brought the last five or the top five companies on stage. And it was kind of like this process of elimination. Number five, such and such. Number four, such and such. You know, and they're kind of like knocking one person off the stage at a time. And it's down to two companies, us and another one. And the only thought going through my head Again, this is God's honest truth. Is I cannot believe we were the, the runner up to TechCrunch 50. That's so awesome. <laughs> like it didn't even occur to me, even at that moment, that we were going to win. And and uh, when we won, it was like a, this game changing, like life changing experience for us, where everyone's cheering and the flash bulbs are going off, and you know the press is going crazy. There's all these articles written about us. Got over a thousand emails the next day, um, and in fact. One of the viewers the, uh, in the audience was somebody from Home Depot. And three years later, or actually two years later, Home Depot ended up acquiring the company. And the reason they knew about Red Beacon was because of that TechCrunch 50 uh, experience. So I just want to be sure that we that I want to paint this picture even even more fully of, of Red Beacon and TechCrunch 50. Was it was it just the three of you at that point? Still? Yeah. Um, so I think we had maybe hired a front end engineer. So three, three guys uh, in an office. So maybe and, one employee. Right. So f- five guys. And then and we had an intern from Harvard Business School. Okay. And that was about it. That's so amazing. we had like one intern, one employee, and then the, the three co-founders. And we hadn't raised a dollar. We hadn't paid ourselves for over a year. So I'm curious about this. This is something I, as, a, as a bootstrapper that I'm always curious about. What were you, what were you living without as, as, as you bootstrapped this company? Were you looking around saying like... You know, uh, I'm living under my desk. I'm uh, I, I I don't know if I'm funny by soap or something like that. You know, like what 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 types of sacrifices were you making? Well, okay, it's not that extreme. You know, it, it's yeah. There's all kinds of tricks. You know, so we put our loans on hold. You know, because their federal government loans say, you know, if you're not making any money, then you don't you can like actually put your loans on hold. So all of our you know those heavy expenses kind of stopped. Um, we weren't like dirt poor because we had worked at Google. We were like in our, you know, late twenties or early thirties. And so we had some money saved up. Like I said, we each put in $50,000 to start the company. So this isn't like a 22 year old starting it, but at the same time, weren't, you know, we weren't super wealthy either. We had to be really, really lean. That office in San Mateo cost about $800 a month, including utilities. So really, really cheap. Um, you know, we used our own computers. We just bootstrapped everything. You know, we had almost no expenses. And, you know, the, the, like, I'm, I'm also curious with this in terms of like, well, actually, let me go back to the Home Depot thing. Like you, you, you mentioned it. I mean, it, <laughs> in reading about it, it seemed like the, like, like the, the Home Depot guy was almost, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm putting this in quotes, but almost like stalking you guys for, for, for a couple of years. Can you tell us about the experience with the Home Depot as they, as they kind of subtly, very quietly pursued you guys and decided to buy you? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I think that for the guys at Home Depot, it was kind of a, a shock that a company in the home services space would win Silicon Valley's, you know, huge tech competition. Right. Right. Like that's not, that's not normal. And so, you know, I think they were just excited by that, by that fact. And then they had, if you want, I can actually get into a little bit about why they were excited about Red Beacon. Um, They had been brainstorming internally about what should their technology strategy be? You know, what should they be doing kind of as their game-changing idea? And they came up with something that was very similar to Red Beacon. Very, very similar. And interestingly, they had a spin on it that I would never have considered. Their spin was that they wanted to turn it into a loyalty program for service providers who shop the Home Depot. Hmm. And so the way it would work is the more money you spent at the Home Depot, the more Red Beacon jobs you would get. So think about that. Mm. You go in, you spend $1,000 on the supplies for a job, and you get a job. And you go back to Home Depot, and you spend some more money for that job, and you get another job. And so they're like, well, this is great. We don't even care how much money Red Beacon generates. We right. just care that it's driving service providers back in store to shop. 
because they're not that loyal as it turns out, which you know, I didn't realize, but service providers will just go to, go to the closest hardware store because the consumer is paying anyway, and so they don't really care where they shop, and they don't really care what it costs. So this gave them a reason to always go back to Home Depot. Do you, do you have any, uh, any knowledge of whether that thesis was actually correct? Um, I do think it was correct. You know, I don't have, um, you know, a lot that I can kind of publicly talk about. Right. I think that one lesson uh, that I think everybody learned from the experience is that uh, when you have a, I forgot how many locations Home Depot has, but it's in the thousands of locations. It's a decentralized organization in the sense that each store manager and the district managers have a lot of autonomy from the headquarters. Um, and you know they give them that autonomy because they're accountable for the revenue and the profits of their stores. And so in that kind of environment, it can be difficult to get adoption of a, of a you know majorly new initiative such as Beacon. because what it required in the store is signage, staff members, consumers to use Red Beacon, um, training of the service providers who are shopping there. You know, so it really took like, you know, an education, training, and kind of um, merchandising initiative to make this successful. And in some regions, I think that they, they took to it with great enthusiasm and other So I think the probably result was mixed. Right. And and so you moved on and, and you started <clears throat> my time after Red Beacon, but I'm curious if you're like, um, you know, I mean this, of course, in a tongue-in-cheeky kind of way, but if you're like the, uh, you know, if, if Red Beacon is kind of like the old girlfriend that you're constantly looking up online at this point, I mean, are you able to, are you able to walk away now that you're at my time and be like, I'm not, I'm not looking back, I'm, you know, like, or do you check out the site frequently and, and say, oh, this is what they're doing? Right. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I, you know, I still have my Google alerts set for Red Beacon and definitely anything, any news about it. It's always interesting to me. Um, a lot of my, my friends and colleagues, uh, even the co-founders who I started the company with, they've all left now. Right. Uh, our, our CTO became the CTO of Home Depot. So I thought that was a pretty amazing career trajectory for him. Um, but he's now, you know, since gone on to work on different things. So most of our team is not there anymore. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. Home Depot, I think, um, didn't realize how in Silicon Valley, people actually don't want to go, they don't necessarily value job security. I think maybe in Atlanta, where the company is based, right. they acquire somebody and it's like, you know, it's hitting the lottery. Oh, great. We've got like a job at Home Depot Corporation for life and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, here in the Valley, it's like, there's like handcuffs and people just want to get out as quickly as they can. And so if you don't put in place the proper incentives to keep um, employees from a company acquired with you, they'll probably leave as soon as they can and go do something different. Right. Right. That makes sense. So uh, let's get to my time where you, where, where you are now. Um, I mean, you you left. I mean, at least according to your, your LinkedIn profile, you, you left Red Beacon in April 2011. Started my time in May 2011. Like you didn't need a you didn't need a, a, a little bit of a break. Did you allow yourself any time off? No, you know, and that was a mistake. I mean, <laughs> there'll definitely be some time off post my time, whenever that is. But <clears throat> I, you know. I had, again, this burning desire to create my time, and I was so worried that if I didn't do it right away, somebody else would, and it would be this like winner-take-all market, and so there was no time. There was, like, I took a month, I went to the Galapagos Islands and the rainforest of Ecuador and did some things, but, I mean, I was just, I was already thinking about my time, even while I was still at Red Beacon, and I just didn't think that there was the time to kind of, to waste and to, you know, hang out, because the idea would be gone, and it was the best idea I ever had. So I just wanted to get started on it. And I'm curious about that. So it's, it's amazing that you're, you're talking about that, like, with, with such urgency, because I'm curious about the effect of, of, of a sale of a business where, uh, you know, reports on the internet for what they're worth would suggest that, you know, you did pretty well on the sale. And how do you, how do you ensure that personally you have that kind of, that kind of, that kind of urgency afterwards, um, you know, when, when maybe you don't have to as much as you needed to before? Well, you know, it, it really comes down to what is your motivation for starting the company in the first place. I, I don't think for me the motivation was ever about money. And, you know, I'm not going to turn money down like anybody, but it was never, you know, there's, there's, I have friends from business school who are bankers and hedge fund managers, and they've made, I mean, tens of millions of dollars. There's no, I mean, more money than they could really, you know, holistically spend in their lifetime. 
and yet they're still so driven by money. It's like they're they're just that's what's driving them is make more money, do more things, do bigger deals, etc. You know, I just don't have that. I for me, it's about impact. It's about creating and building something from scratch. It's about figuring out how the pieces connect. It's about how are you impacting millions of people at scale. And, you know, ideally, I mean, and that's a cliche, but making the world better in some what you built, not just creating like another dry cleaners on the corner, really disrupting the industry and finding a way to do it far more efficiently and, you know, to help more people get access to the service. And so we haven't talked yet about my time, but I can tell you about why I think it's an important business and why it needs to exist. Absolutely. Let's let's start there. So the world, um, my time world, first of all, my time is about online and automated marketing software for small businesses. It's also a consumer destination where millions of people come to find and book appointments with those local businesses. A very good analogy is Open Table, because a lot of people are familiar with a restaurant reservation site. Open Table sells software to the local businesses, and they also have a great destination where you can search for open reservations um, in, in different places at different times. And so that's very much what my time is, but it's appealing to a different um, sector of businesses, you know, hair salons, massage therapists, dog groomers, dentists, chiropractors, even auto mechanics. It's the whole local service sector outside of restaurants. These guys were largely in pen and paper or they were using like Google Calendar or Outlook or something, but they weren't using online scheduling. And the world around them was moving to an online you know, uh, online booking world. Just like e-commerce happened, products and digital goods. In the 2000s, its services are moving to an online distribution model. I mean, when's the last time you called an airline to book a flight? When's the last time you called the taxi company instead of, you know, getting into Uber? Um, everybody is just, you know, whether it's even services in the real world, they expect to be able to book online and to transact online now. And I was really concerned that these businesses who are all in pen and paper would eventually get disrupted and pushed aside by, you know, larger companies and chains that had the resources to enable this. It's now, a- when, you know, and just kind of taking that one step further, when you have online booking, it's not just like you can go to their website and book online. Actually, what it means is now you can integrate your Yelp into Google, into Facebook, into Bing, you know, places where hundreds of millions of people go every day just to shop and to search and to, to look up reviews. You can now have online booking and transactions integrated into those products. You can integrate it into Siri. So you could say, Siri, book me a haircut on Saturday. And it's like, no problem, I can do that for you. And so it, it actually opens, it actually, how do I say it? It gives you access to millions of new people uh, that you didn't previously have. So it's, it's, that, it's that important. So this is the idea, and, and, you, and you found it um, on your own. And before, you know, you had like three co-founders. Uh, I'm curious, like everyone says, you know, hey, well, you need co-founders, co- businesses with co-founders work, and I'm a sole co-founder. I'm a sole founder uh, of a business, and I, I'm always like, I don't know. I think, I think you can do it on your own, but of course that's my experience. What, was, what were you thinking when you decided to launch this on your own? Well, you know, co- co-founders... How do you say? Co-founders are more of a. Gosh, I'm not, sure, I'm not lost for words. There's the official co-founder. Like this is like this is my co-founder. Legally, we started the company together. Split the equity. You know, we're fifty-fifty. You know, we're in this together. And then there's people who actually act like co-founders. <laughs> and right. those two things do not have. They're like a Venn diagram. They don't necessarily 100% overlap. Ask almost any startup founder about their co-founder relationship, and it was not equal. There was one or two people who were doing all the work, and then there was that third guy who was there for like several months or for the first year and like did almost nothing. YouTube had it, Facebook had it. Um, you know, all these companies they have you know the other co-founder that everybody forgot about. Twitter had it, you know, and then sometimes when these companies are really successful, like then you'll write about oh the forgotten co-founder. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So. What right. you want are people, whether co-founders or not, who act like the owners of the company. They are as dedicated as you are. They have equity and they're incented to be successful. They're, you know, they're well, they're well um, compensated with stock in the company. 
and you make the decisions with them and you treat them like co-founders, in other words, involved in the decisions and important meetings, the roles in the company, that's what I was that's what I was really more interested in than, you know, do I have an official co-founder starting the company with me at this exact moment in time that I want to start the company? So, you know, you, you give us, I mean, give us a sense of the progress at this point. You have, you have several thousand companies online already and are, and are growing pretty rapidly. I mean, can you give us some, some metrics? Yeah, sure. So we have, um, we, we had, it, we came up with an interesting growth, growth hack to get traffic to my time. What we did is we put the two and a half million local businesses in America onto the website even before they had signed up. And we call them thin profiles. Now, other people have done this, Yelp, Google Places, Yellow Pages, they have profiles of businesses that haven't signed up for their services. But we had a little innovation. We actually put a request appointment button on those pages. And when a consumer lands on that page, and actually millions of consumers do land on those pages because our SEO is very good, they request an appointment with that business, and that triggers our sales team to call the business and say, hey, Ethan would like to put a haircut with you tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Would you like to take this appointment? And furthermore, he booked you through my time. I noticed you haven't claimed your profile yet. Would you like to claim your profile? And then that leads to them accepting a profile. And then uh, ideally, we upsell them to our online scheduling and automated marketing software, which is, you know, we think the best on the market um, so that they can get off of pen and paper or Google Calendar or whatever they're using. And that's our sales process. And through that process, we've signed up so far about 14,000 businesses with a very small sales team. And we're now rapidly scaling that sales team. Uh, we've had to take it out of San Francisco, which is interesting because the market here had gotten so expensive and the talent market was so competitive that we, we pulled out of San Francisco and we moved the whole sales and service team to Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, where we thought we'd be able to find better talent. And so we're building our sales team out there. We'd like it to be 40 by the end of this year and, you know, several hundred by next year. It's a little VFA plug there again, I guess, you know, that, that not everything has to happen in the big cities. That, that sometimes is a really good reason to go to a Salt Lake City. I'm sure they rolled out the red carpet for you. They did. Absolutely. They had um, a representative from the Utah government who took me up and down the Wasatch Range, which is that, that, that range of cities that go from uh, Ogden in the north to Salt Lake City in the middle to Provo in the south. They showed me different cities, and they showed me and had the business development people from the Chambers of Commerce come out. They helped us find property uh, for an office. They got tax incentives. They really did roll out the red carpet. They even helped with recruiting. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. So aside from the task of, like, generally speaking, building a great company, what on a day-to-day level, like, really excites you about your work at my time? Yeah, because, you know, that's a great question. Here's what excites me about it. I think that it's inevitable. That's what I think. I think that if, you know, I close my eyes and I imagine the near future, it's called a five-year I truly do not think people will be picking up the telephone and calling around for appointments. Right. You know, any more than you call around for, you know, for a flight. You will be going onto your phone, you'll be clicking a button, or you'll be going onto your computer, or your tablet, or, or your iWatch, or whatever it is, and you'll be doing it that way. So I feel like this trend is happening. I didn't even have to create the trend, it's just happening on own. And someone needs to facilitate it. Someone's going to win big, someone's going to make a huge amount of money and have a, you know, be the, 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 the dominant player in the industry, such as Amazon is, with physical goods and e-commerce. And I want to be that company. Is there anything that you absolutely dread about your, your day-to-day these days? Just a task that you're like, how am I doing this? I've been a CEO for too long to be doing this. Sometimes it feels like it's endless recruiting and interviews. And I feel, you know, everyone says having a great team is the most important thing. And that is true. But part of having a great team is basically looking at endless resumes, telling your story seven or eight times a day, 
trying to sell people, negotiating. It's just that that kind of thing. It just it can feel like a drudgery. Not at, not the first few times you do it, but after right. you've been doing it for years, you're like, God, I wish the team would just grow itself. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> you know, but it's I, I'm still involved in the hiring because I want to make sure we're small enough still that I want to make sure we're getting the best people, and so I still want to be involved with all the different players in the company. At some point, it's probably not scalable, and you know, I, I won't do that. But for now, I'm still involved in the recruiting for all the different roles. It seems like, I mean, at almost like five years of my time, uh, this is this this is like almost double like your longest term business relationship, so to speak. Um, you know, are you like? I mean, it sounds like you absolutely love it, but I mean, is there anything about you that's antsy? Are there ideas that you have where you're like, ah, oh, I, 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 I've got to do that, but I'm 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 at my time. I've got to just file that away. Um, you know, how is there, is there any you know a, a antsiness at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, I was antsy on the second day, you know, and I'm still antsy. So I think that at startups, time is not your friend. You are competing. You're racing against the clock. You're trying to get momentum in your business going. And, you know, you just do not, I mean, growth is like the the, the comparative. I mean, you want to do smart growth. I think that's probably the modifier, you know, that we've learned in 2015 is that growth at all costs is not a good idea. Right. Um, Or maybe it's a lesson that we relearned from the 90s. But... Um, you know, I'll tell you, we, we didn't get things exactly right in the beginning. Like we started off as we're just going to build this consumer destination site and get millions of visitors and try to make some money on all those bookings. And what we realized last year is we actually, the, the better business, and when I say better business, I mean like economically better business is to actually sell the software to businesses to, to manage their scheduling their automated marketing and their point of sale. Mm-hmm. And the marketplace we'd already built supports that because you know, it's a great benefit that if you're using my time software, you get access to this marketplace with millions of visitors and then hundreds of millions of visitors through our partners like Google. Right. So that's, um, you know, I think that was the lesson that we learned and that's probably why, you know, we're not quite where we thought we would be. But the fact is we're as motivated and excited about this new business direction of providing the software to the small businesses as we were about the marketplace. And, you know, this is one of those pivots that made sense because we didn't have to throw everything out that we'd done before. In fact, we built on top of the marketplace and made it even better with the new direction. I want to digress uh, to to come to wrap the interview. I feel like I could probably go on for another forty five minutes. It's been, this has been fantastic, but um, you know, is 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 your experience as an advisor maybe helping to scratch that itch where you can maybe participate a little vicariously in some of the businesses you you advise? You advise Summify, which was acquired by Twitter, and Brightness, which was interestingly acquired by by Angie's List, which is sort of mm-hmm. a related space to Red Beacon. How did these companies find you? How did you know? And and how do you? How much time can you commit? What is it like to be an advisor? Yeah, so um, I try to put myself out there to help other entrepreneurs. So I speak. Um, I'm a mentor at various organizations. For instance, 500 Startups is an incubator in the Valley. There's another organization that's out of Canada, which recruited me, and they they asked me to be them. Uh, what they do is it's called uh, MetaBridge, MetaBridge, and they bring American entrepreneurs to Canada to kind of work with young Canadians who are just starting their companies for the first time and help give them some access to connections in the Valley, best practices. Um, you know, we, we were very spoiled being in the Valley because we have, you know, we're in proximity to VCs, press, big companies like Google, Facebook. And so, um, you know, sometimes someone even in, let's say, British Columbia may not have those kind of connections, so they bring us up there. And that's how I met the Summify guys. So interestingly, they're from Romania. And because of the U.S.'s very like restrictive immigration policies, they couldn't come to the U.S. to start their company. So they went to Canada instead. And that's where I met them, is at this conference that I'm a mentor for. And they asked me to be an advisor for them. And I could tell they're really smart guys, two smart engineers, great idea for a company called Summify. And I was thrilled to advise them and work with them on their company, which, uh, as you said, was eventually acquired by Twitter. Um, similar story with uh, Brightnest. I'm a mentor for 500 startups in, in Mountain View, and uh, they asked me to advise them because of the similarities, you know, in the same space as Red Beacon, the home services space. And so, really, really bright founder and CEO, uh, you know, really enjoyed working with him. And so, yeah, um, as you mentioned, they were eventually acquired by Angie's List. 
don't know if you could tell from my accent, but I'm actually Canadian, and uh, and ah. I think it's uh, I think it's worthwhile mentioning to people who are listening that um, it it shows you what a, what an incredible entrepreneurial culture the the United States has that a country as as advanced as Canada still needs to bring in um, you know entrepreneurs from the United States to to create connections to sort of. I, I don't want to denigrate Canada because I, I love it, but it's just it's not nearly the entrepreneurial culture that even though we're so similar culturally, there's there's nothing like you know the American entrepreneurial culture in the world. Maybe Israel, I don't know. Maybe you can think of think of another one, but I mean it's it's really really remarkable that there's such a gulf between two countries that are in many ways so similar, but the the U.S. is so far ahead entrepreneurially. It's amazing you're doing that. Um, yeah, I think it is a cultural thing, but the Canadian government, you know, still really wants to encourage entrepreneurship to the extent that they will give you grants for starting your company. And they actually fund this entire MetaBridge conference in, in Kelowna, British Columbia, uh, where they fly all the VIPs up from Silicon Valley and they provide hotels and they pay for the whole thing. So um, I think they really want to encourage more entrepreneurship. And there have been some phenomenal companies coming out of Canada. But you're right, the, you know, the culture in the U.S. Is, is kind of just unparalleled right now. Yeah, it's so amazingly robust. Um, I, we're kind of out of time, but I mean, Ethan, thanks so much for, for sharing your story. And it's great to have a serial entrepreneur um, on the show. And uh, I mean, there's so many leaping off points that, uh, that we didn't get to. So uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll coax you into a return visit uh, as, as my time uh, continues to progress. Um, but and, well, and, and, well, and much I really luck enjoyed with, the, the interview and thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. And, and much luck with my time. It sounds uh, fascinating and exciting. Thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. get it attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on netflix but what do people do with their ears well for one they're listening to audio americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day oh and you want the proof well you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds what could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds let odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs advertise with odyssey visit ads.odyssey.com